0: Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The marvelous beginning words of Psalm 133 verse 1, the opportunity to assemble and to gather in an attribute of unity, desirous of worshiping the God of heaven. It is indeed a privilege and an honor that God has granted us again this Sunday afternoon to assemble like this, surely as we continue our week this week. What an opportunity I hope we'll also have before us to consider a lesson entitled, God's Provision for Man Before the Foundation of the World. I hope really that the latter part of that title will somewhat capture our attention and direct it to several verses that will be the centerpiece of our lesson this evening, before the foundation of the world. Some opening thoughts perhaps to challenge us in regard to what's yet to come before us this evening might well be these on this next slide. Don't you suppose it's fair to say that life tends to proceed along in procession and it does so perhaps easily enough to appreciate all about us, the constancy of the following. A young boy or girl is born. He or she proceeds to grow and some number of decades later, perhaps less or perhaps more, but ultimately that growth comes into elderliness And it's so often the case, of course, you and I recognize the final end of all is the same, that's death. That particular thing seems to be true whether that individual was a Christian or whether he or she was not. It's true whether or not they tended to direct their life towards moral excellence or whether they were a rascal, to say the very least. The same end is true for either. That's one of the matters that bothered Solomon somewhat, wasn't it? In Ecclesiastes 2, verses 16 and 17. Even he made observation whether one is wise or whether one's a fool. Death comes to either one. Sometimes still that is used as an idea that atheists and others will use. Well, Surely if there's a God, he would make some distinction between those who do follow him and those that don't. And yet, that perturbs Solomon, and sometimes it is still a matter that presents a matter of trouble to you and me as well. However, in light of observations like that one, I would enter, I would ask us to place into consideration God's amazing provisions for the human family. And ultimately, we're going to find what marvelous spectacle of provision for those that really are His. There is something different. And that's something that's different would be something you and I should often reflect on and use it to embody in ourselves that positive attribute and in continual encouragement to the service of God. When we speak about God's provision for man before the foundation of the world, why don't we then allow it next to bring us to this observation. You'll notice the last word of that title is the word World. And frequently in the scriptures we see that utilized in a way to give direction to basically a reference to earth, this ball, this sphere upon which you and I live. When you think about earth, one of the things about it that seems so quickly to come to mind is its apparent constancy, its apparent permanence, its apparent continuance in almost every regard. In fact, even the scriptures make observation of that. In Psalm 104 verse number 5, the ancient psalmist so easily highlighted the fact that the earth as it's therein described abideth forever. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4, as he himself observed the cycles descriptive of this planet, the waters always run into the sea, and he said, This earth, as you and I perceive it indeed, continues or abides forever. The permanence of earth is something upon which many have chosen to found their life. This earth is something on which they can consider a standard of continuance and permanence. But it is in light of that, may we never forget, that this earth did have a beginning. It's not as though it's always been here. And it's not as though its ultimate features are beyond the control and bounds of that powerful and great God of heaven. Earth's beginning, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, Genesis 1, verse number 1. As that opening pronouncement, that great proclamation is made, I would ask you to observe even the Hebrew writer, as he utilized that word world, stated it like that, didn't he? By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. There was a moment at which things, this world, came into its existence. It's not as if it's always been here. And it's not as if it shall always be here either. For after all, you'll notice the statement that this creation of God and the way in which it attaches to the planet Earth, in Isaiah 45, verse number 18... The prophet, there, of course, God speaking through him, overwhelmingly affirmed that this earth was especially fashioned, created, and made by the God of heaven for the express purpose of being inhabited. Isn't it still a very interesting thing? As astronomers and astrophysicists peer their telescopes and their other light-gathering devices into the heavens, that to this point, not a single celestial body not a single one has the attributes consistent with those of earth. Not a single one has the marvelous matters of water in the various three forms in which we appreciate it. We understand that this earth was fashioned. Its waters, its atmosphere, the nature of its temperature, everything set so that there could be life as God placed here. That nature of life appreciates, of course, that to say that God fashioned this earth. That tells us immediately what preceded earth. This being, this great entity we recognize as God. He existed before it. The eternality of God is one of the prime anchors stepped before us in the Bible. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He had no beginning, he shall have no end. To borrow the words of Psalm 90, verse number 2. As we then think about the continuance, the eternality, the permanence of God, notice how it stands in contrast to earth. Earth had a beginning and it shall have an end. With regard to those statements, perhaps one final thing. When you and I then give thought over the remainder of the lesson tonight, this distinction that we see, what incredible provisions God has made. And you'll notice they are they cannot be summarized fully by the very nature of this physical planet Earth. They go far beyond it. What things has God prepared and planned for you and me? What things based on his provision really date back even before Earth was ever founded? The rest of tonight, let's look at several of those things really that date back even before Earth's creation, that God put in place for you and for me. What great statements they ought to make about His love for us, His plan for us, His objective for us, and how our response ought to be. First of all, let's look at this one. Again, before the foundation of the world. I've entitled this slide, Savior and Sinners. After all, as we quickly begin, we remember that in that creation episode, as it's told to us in the opening two chapters of Genesis, we find, of course, an increasing crescendo, a zenith, if you will, about life. Day number three, God fashioned that life that you and I call plant life. Seeds began to grow and germination took place, and that life we recognize in terms of plants, in fact, came about on day three. Two days later, on day number five, God fashioned that life existent in the waters. Fish and whales and various others. Types of creatures. We also notice life in the air, fowls, and the birds of the air on that same day. But at this point, I notice on day number six, there was that life called beasts, cattle, and dinosaurs, and the other things that lived actually on land. But ultimately, aside from all of that, there was something yet to be observed, for in none of them could it be said that there was a creature that was God's crowning achievement. And then finally on day number six, later on in that same day, we remember the scripture says, let us make man in our image. What was not said of any of the life forms on days three or five or earlier on day six was now said of man, he, Adam, was made in the image of God. There was a sense in which that specialness, that character, that description of Him surely lifted Him toweringly above any of the other kinds of life that God had made on days one, on to day number six. It is with that attribute, might you again think of it like this with me. It is said in Genesis 5 verse number 2 that this man was made in God's likeness. And later in the book of James it is stated to be after the similitude of God, James 3, verses 12 and following. With regard to all of them, notice that this man whom God had fashioned, initially in the pristine beauty of innocence, he was able to enjoy a fullness in regard to fellowship with God. We are reminded that it, this man, this Adam, and of course Eve as well, occupied an abode in a location, a place called Eden, which God had especially prepared for them. Therein was the tree of life. There was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, beside each of them, they were able to appreciate all the marvelous provision of God physically for their benefit on earth. But that leads us to observe this. That man chose to disobey. He chose to transgress what God said. He chose to do what God said not to do. And yet, the thing of it is, God knew all along that man was going to make that choice. For you see, the future is not hidden from God. As we noted earlier, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And Isaiah reminded us in Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10, the fact that there is nothing hidden from him, even the future. God knew that Adam was going to mess up and Eve as well. But it is into that very circumstance that we observe these verses that put you and me in the very same category. For there is no man that sinneth not, to borrow Solomon's words of 1 Kings 8, 46. And didn't Paul highlight it so clearly in Romans three twenty three? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. John joined in that chorus in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, when he said, If any man says that he is not sinned, that man's a liar. With regard to all of that, put all of these together with me and note the following. That third statement, long before the first sin was ever committed by Adam and Eve, long before they had made that terrible, terrible choice, you notice there was already a Savior put in place. Isn't that interesting about the time frame? Before man had made his terrible mistake, God already had devised that scheme whereby a Savior was chosen, a Savior was selected, and I would ask you to notice the wording of Revelation 13:8. Notice there speaking about Christ in regard in terms of the salvation, it says before the foundation of the world that selection had been made. Doesn't that point us to just how marvelous it is to give thought even before earth was ever founded, before the very first of the days of the creation, week, God had already made plans. And those plans involved the second member of the God, he had been a savior for the humanity, for those that would transgress, for those that would fall. That includes you and me, doesn't it? It is with that in mind, might I ask you to notice the wording of 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 20. Here, this same idea reappears again. There, as Peter addressed the topic of your redemption in mind, he says, we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, But he goes on to identify that you and I were redeemed by that precious blood of Christ, the blood of the Lamb that was foreordained before the foundation of the world. May we again notice, ever before the first day of God's creative activity, already plans were in place, and there was a Savior already in mind. That's a bit amazing, isn't it? God's love... His extension of favor toward the human family was even put in place by way of foundation before earth's actual creation. Maybe in light of that, consider then some of these statements that highlight that which the Lord accomplished. In John 1 verse 29, as John the Baptist himself so bountifully stated, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. It is none other than Christ Jesus, and His blood alone that allows sins to be forgiven and taken away. Surely one last thought then would be that text of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, and especially verse number 3, in which there, as Paul highlighted the central features and characteristics of the gospel, he identified that it's only the gospel that has that power of salvation within it. But yet the founding elements are that Christ came, Christ died, Christ was resurrected, And, of course, at this point, he reigns beautifully at the right hand of of God the Father. At this point, before the foundation of the world, before the first sin, there was already a Savior. But what else might you and I recollect about the foundation of the world, and what else may have preceded it that also can be so very interesting to you and to me? Surely, as we come to the next observation, it's fair to note the word grace... Followed by the word guilt. I would ask you to develop that thought with me as well as we begin like this. We've already highlighted that fatal choice that Adam as well as Eve made. And the same kind of choices, of course, that you and I make as well as we choose to disobey the God of heaven. But you'll notice along with that attribute of sin, there is inevitably the reality of death. God especially told Adam and Eve, As he told them in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, In the day that thou eatest of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. That's about as straightforward and plain as one can imagine. Now, they didn't die physically the day they partook of that forbidden fruit. But they did die spiritually, and later they did die physically. In fact, the details are provided for us in Genesis chapter 5. At the ripe old age of 930, Adam did die. When you think about then that which comes with death, or what comes with sin, we understand it's death. Romans 6:23 says, "Speaking about the greatness of that gift of God, as it stands opposed to and against that which is the inevitable end, the marvelous consideration of death. In James chapter 1, verses 13 and following we read this statement about what is to be said concerning life, and verse 15 will be the one that brings us to consider specifically the attribute of death. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted of evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. The certainty of death, as it comes along with the reality of sin no wonder in light of that we realize sin is not something then that god wishes it's not something that's his plan sin of course is what happens when you and i transgress and disobey and it is what the devil wishes and prefers surely in light of all of that you notice then one more time we have reached a pivotal factor Long before the first guilt from any sin, there was already the provision for God's grace. We know that because of the wording of Second Timothy 1, verse number 9, which there, speaking about the nature of Christ, before the foundation of the world, the extension of God's grace, housed under the banner of Christ Jesus and His blood, before the first guilt from Adam and Eve's sin, before the first difficult choice due to those transgressions, there was already... The plan for God's grace. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Doesn't it highlight yet so often again that this whole matter of salvation is not a fly by night scheme? It is not a last-minute plan B, if you please. God's provision for you and for me dates far back even before the creation of the world itself. We've already learned tonight about this matter of grace and guilt. And we've seen previously in the lesson tonight the greatness of how it stands opposed to the transience of man and the nature of sin. Surely in light of that, we notice in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 7, and I would ask you to notice as I read that, Paul again in this text makes mention of the same. Listen to the occurrence of the phrase, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 3. in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Notice twice the word grace was utilized to characterize and identify this whole scenario, and yet Paul said before the foundation of the world, the foreordination of God highlighted and brought to this reality. I hope that among other things we can then appreciate that this statement in Ephesians 1.6 says to the praise Of the glory of His grace. May we then ceaselessly praise God by way of what He has provided for us even before He ever created the world. Doesn't that highlight how much He wants to be with us forever? How much He wants us to live according to His plan and will? Surely the last thought on the slide takes us to the key usage of that word in Romans, the eighth chapter. Paul, on that occasion, had mentioned, Verse number 5, predestinated. He elaborates on that thought more carefully in Romans 8 and ties it so beautifully to your obedience and mine and God's choosing of us even again before the very foundation of the world. That does not teach Calvinistic predestination. It teaches that there is the opportunity of each to either respond or not favorably to God's opportunity and plan. But he foreordained that those who would follow suit and obey his will would be forever. Those that would be selected as his children and those that would be forever blessed, even from the foundation of the world with the blessings of salvation through Christ's blood. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? These two things so far before the foundation of the world leads us to wonder about another What else took place before the foundation of this world that points the finger directly at the blessings and provisions you and I still enjoy? Might I ask you to look at this one. On the one hand, there is thought of heaven. On the other, the unfortunate and rather unfavorable thought of that destiny known as hell. Let's develop that thought as follows. You and I know very well how the Bible describes this place called hell. It is a place, of course, of great torment, of fire and brimstone. It's a place of separation from God. It is a place reserved for the devil and his angels. Borrowing the Lord's language in Matthew twenty-five, forty-one. This place of hell as it's lifted before our eyes in the book of Revelation is the place where the dragon is cast and not only him but the beasts, the false prophets and all of those that choose to follow them. Read Revelation 19 the last paragraph of that chapter, and also Revelation 20, verse number 10. In all those instances, we seemingly appreciate the following. Hell is a place, then, for the ungodly. It's a place for those that are not right with the Lord, the unrighteous, those who have rebelled against Him. That now leads us back to the same matter. That's the title of our lesson tonight. When you and I revisit the scene of Genesis chapter 1, after every one... Of the particular days of creation it says it was good day one two three four and five and then finally day six and then in Genesis 131 as it makes reference to the totality of God's creation to that point it says it was all very good it seems as though there was no consideration on earth of any sin at all and that we know what happened prior to that creation We do know there was rebellion in heaven. We do know that one of the angels, followed by a group of others, chose to rebel against that which was the magnitude of God's command. They chose not to keep their first estate, Jude verse 6. They chose, in fact, a different route, lifted up by haughtiness, arrogance, and pride, and they were cast out. At this point, consider this. In the initial outset of God's creation of all the angels, there was no evil in heaven either. But the time came that by their own choice and volition, some number of them led by that devil chose, of course, to disobey and chose to, of course, arraign themselves against God. But doesn't that suggest that if the hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, initially there was no hell. In the very outset of God's creative activity, from the time the angels were created, there was no place called hell. There was no need for it. But look what has come about in the moment since. When they chose to disobey, it was God who put in place this place of torment. And 2 Peter 2.4 says that therein, those disobedient angels are held in chains of darkness under that great day of judgment. So you'll notice long before there was a place called hell, there was that marvelous place called heaven. The very abode of God, a place of sweetness, tranquility, peace, a place of obedience and rightfulness and appropriateness, a place in which we do not find anything that reminds us of the terribleness of hell. Again, before there was a hell, there was heaven. But you'll notice in light of all of that, doesn't it remind us that as we've discussed so far, these attributes of hell on the one hand versus heaven on the other, the choice is left, of course, to all of us as to which one we would wish to have as our eternal destiny. God does leave that choice to us. Although He fashioned heaven initially, it was the place of His abode. And notice the scriptures identify three heavens. There is the local atmosphere of earth where the birds are. There's the distant cosmos where the stars and the other celestial bodies are. And then there's that third heaven, the one to which Paul was caught up in 2 Corinthians 12. The place wherein, in fact, we find the very throne of God. Psalm 11, verses 3 and 4. Didn't Solomon himself talk about the heaven of heavens? The place of the very abode of God the Father himself. We find as the book of Revelation comes to its close, there's the place in which the righteous are blessed with marvelous provision to be forevermore. As you come near the bottom of that slide, we find the permanence of this place called heaven highlighted in such a vivid and dramatic way in Revelation 21. You may recall that as John saw and wrote down what he saw, he saw a celestial city. It was an equal cube in terms of its dimensions, but in that he noticed it had 12 foundations, some of them being the hardest and finest of the gems and minerals and stones available, and the number 12 reminding us of the permanence of the indestructibility of it. Heaven will not pass away. Anyone blessed to enter shall never be kicked out. Anyone blessed with the capability of enjoying time there, if you please will never be forced to think about having to leave. It is with all of that, we close that slide by observing, this is the very attribute and thought that the Hebrew writer uses in Hebrews chapter 4. You may remember the f- term, the phrase, the rest from God. His argument is powerful. His presentation is truly Amazing. He recalls to our mind the thoughts of Old Testament history and said, when the children of Israel left Egyptian bondage, they were headed to a place in which they had been promised milk and honey, a place recognizing rest. We notice that as they finally reached that promised land, now the question can be asked, it is true that they enjoyed a, a kind, of a transient rest for a while, but they didn't stay there. Other countries overwhelmed them. They would otherwise went into captivity later. All of that is used to identify the Old Testament promise there was yet a rest to come. Clearly he wasn't talking about Canaan, for it was yet in the future at some point long after the days of Canaan. The Hebrew writer uses that and says, to the people of God there yet remains a rest. You and I still look for it, and we know it's heaven In Hebrews 4, verses 1 to 6, identified as that golden city, that place to which we look and yearn, a place of rest. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. That rest to which then we long is a rest that you and I know heaven was prepared long before there was a hell. Don't you and I prefer the heaven as opposed to the hell? Surely, in light of all those things, it brings us to a moment of conclusion tonight, to this lesson. The title again, God's provision for man before the foundation of the world. We've studied three things that existed before there was an earth. Three things that pointed out to us God's rich provision for those that would make choices to follow Him with faithfulness. As you can see on that slide, although it may seem this world is permanent and never is to pass away, we know that isn't true. Second Peter 3.10 puts it in no stronger language than this. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall met with fervent heat. The earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This earth is not going to last permanently. However, you and I know that these things that predated it point out to us there will be some things that post-dated as well. And we and I have studied these. Before there were any sinners, there was already plans for a Savior. Before there was any guilt from sin, there was already plans for the extension of God's grace. And finally, before there was a hell, there was already a heaven. I hope you and I will then choose wisely and proceed to remember that God's provided for us even before the earth was founded in ways that highlight and provide the hallmark for our faithfulness. Jonathan has led us in songs tonight, and all of them have surrounded the thought of victory. All three of the positive sides of that, the Savior, the Savior, The plan for God's grace and the thought of heaven reminds us of victory over the devil, victory over sin, victory over ungodliness. And Revelation 12 verse 11 still defines the three-form platform for that victory. The blood of Christ, the Word of God, and complete and total dedication to His cause. Does that characterize you and me? If it doesn't, why not make it so tonight? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door and sup with me and I with him, he shall overcome and come over to live with me. That's the promise of Revelation 3, verses 20 and 21. Tonight, before the foundation of the world, is all things well and ready with your soul to in fact enjoy the grandeur and all the blessings of majesty? If not, why not obey the gospel? God's plan of salvation involves these requirements. You must believe that Jesus is exactly the Messiah, the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and then submissively and humbly be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. If you've attended to that requirement but have drifted from it, remember the Hebrew writer warned all of us in a ceaseless way to take heed lest we drift away from what's been spoken. Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 3. Tonight, if you need to come back to your first love, we'll be happy to pray with you and for you. We'll beseech God for your forgiveness. You must, of course, believe that He'll do so. Repent of those things and confess them, and He will forgive them. If tonight we could be of help to you, we draw this lesson to its close, highlighting God's provision before the foundation of the world. Why not take advantage of His grace, extended by way of the Christ, the Savior, to make your plans for heaven. And if we could help you, why not come while together we stand and sing?